Hello and welcome to another episode of Naturally Curious. My name is Clayton Law, and my guest today is International Development Studies Professor Harum Akramlodi. How are you today? I'm absolutely fine. Thanks for having me.、Uh, so let's just start off by saying, like, okay, historically speaking, any sort of development studies. Were offered as a graduate degrees only until early '90s, where it got popular, and then there are lots of like undergraduate program for development studies. So, did you gain your interest bef-、uh, on international studies before or after that popular?、Uh, well, Clayton, there's a couple of misconceptions actually in in your statement because the Trent program in comparative development studies actually dates back to 1976. Wow. And it was one of the first, not only in North America, it was one of the first in the world、uh, in which you could do a program in what we now call international development studies. And certainly during the course of the 1980s,、uh, there was a very large rise in programs in development studies, particularly in Northern Europe. Not so much in Canada. The growth in Canada came in the 1990s and through the early 2000s. But、uh, my own interest、uh, in development really、um, ar- arose、uh, from the time when I was in my early twenties, when、uh, I hadn't gone to university.、Uh, I was working service sector jobs, and I used the money that I made at the time to travel around the world. And those trips lasted quite lengthy periods of time, and took me to some fairly、uh, some fairly remote places, and places which, at the time, were very unusual to go to. And it was in the, it was from my travels, particularly across Asia and North Africa, but also in Southeast Asia, that I developed my interest in what development was, and what it might accomplish.、Um, And at the time when I started university, in fact, I wanted to be a journalist. I didn't want to be an academic.、Um, there was a journalist at the time who worked for the Globe and Mail, named Oakland Ross, who still works for the Toronto Star occasionally, and he roved across Latin America, writing on things that were just of interest to him,、uh, anywhere he wanted, anything he wanted. I thought that sounded like a great job, <laughs> so that's what I wanted to do. But it didn't work out that way. I l- I know that your Uh, education backgrounds are mostly studying economics. Yes. How did you wiggle your way from economics to like international development? I mean, well, obviously, international de- <laughs> like, economics is a big part in international、mm. development. Well, no, because、uh, the thing about it was is that I studied at institutions where international development was development economics, and so I studied development economics from the get go of my very first economics class. As an undergraduate,、uh, they just called it economics, but it was development economics.、Um, what's happened more recently is that a lot of international development degrees, some don't don't contain any economics,、uh, some contain quite a lot of economics, particularly the ones in the United States.、Um, but I was always interested in development as a question of how to improve people's livelihoods. And at the end of the day, for most people, improving their livelihoods means putting more money in their pocket, and that was fundamentally an economic issue. So I always valued the importance of economics, although I also largely questioned the relevance of orthodox economics for answering those kinds of questions. So right from the get-go, I studied economics within the context of development, and then when I finally did my doctorate, it was a doctorate in pure economics. You said you were gonna. You said you wanted to be a journalist rather than an academic. So,、uh, at what point in your like、uh, academic career you kind of like, oh, well, this journalist thing is not gonna happen, but this academic thing is happening. Well, as I sort of implied, I didn't actually start my my undergraduate degree until I was in my mid twenties. So I'd had an entire other life of working. In services for nine years, often on full time, most of the time full time. And so, when I went back to decided, when I decided I wanted to study, I chose a place that would allow me to study development from an economic angle, so that I could become this journalist.、Um, but when I finished my first degree, I was influenced by one of my professors who said. 
you really should do a second degree. And he recommended me going to Cambridge to do my second degree, primarily because it would open doors to my future. And so I took him up on that. And although there were other programs that interested me, I went off to Cambridge. When I was at Cambridge, it was still my intention to pursue a career in journalism. But then I'm getting towards the end of my master's degree in Cambridge, and I'm thinking, well, what am I going to do? And at the time, I, I spent uh, the Christmas period, this is now in the mid-1980s, uh, with my mother, who lived in Winnipeg at the time. And I realized I actually had been away from home for quite a long time from her, and I wanted to spend more time with her. And so I just went into an economics department uh, of, a department, of, of a university that I wasn't aware of, and talked to the head of department, and turned out, I didn't know at the time, he was actually quite a renowned development economist. And he was immediately interested in me coming to study because of the fact that I was coming from Cambridge, and it looked extremely good on their student profile so that they could attract students from Cambridge. So they offered me this package to come and study in the University of Manitoba, and so off I went. And when I went to do that, again, I was thinking journalism, but then you get embroiled within this doctoral work, which takes a very long time. Um, and you can think what your how your professional career is going to develop. But the reality was that while I was doing my doctorate, I started working part-time in a university. And then before I finished, I had a full-time post in a university. And I've worked in universities ever since. And I have written a small amount of journalism but it's not very good. <laughs> is is it somewhere on the internet? I don't know. I'd have to go looking. Actually, this is back in the eighties when everything oh, was in okay, print. Okay. Yeah. But it's like so the professor like academic position just sort of happened. It was it, it it happened in the sense that I stumbled into it, not intending to be an academic, wanting to do something else. But once I got a full time job, I was able to buy a place to live, and then of course there's the consequences of having to pay a mortgage, which means keeping your job, mm -hmm. and those sorts of things create an economic determinism, uh, things you have to continue to maintain. So I just stayed in academia. But I've never regretted my, my choice. It's allowed me to, to do work that I, I consider to be very important. Work with, uh, The most important work I've ever done has received very little uh, recognition, uh, which is fine because it's the work that it's important, not the recognition. And it's allowed me to, to, to go to many places and meet when, many, many wonderful people. Okay, so let's start discussing international development by just a very simple question. Sure. What is international development? It has different kind of definitions on the internet, I found, but they are all very vague. Sure. So in most Canadian universities, international development would be understood as trying to understand the processes by which developing countries who tend to be poorer can or cannot transition towards wealthier societies, wealthier materially, but also wealthier in terms of their ability to meet social needs. And in the post-World War II period, the sort of exemplars of that would be South Korea, Taiwan, and much more recently, China, starting from very poor economic circumstances and, and becoming, over the space of only a few decades, much, much richer, but also being able to really fundamentally improve the quality of life of their populations. That's what most universities would teach development as, as but that's not my understanding of development. To me, development is understanding the process by which societies change and evolve over time. And development is something which happens to both developed and developing countries. Uh, the processes at work can be fairly uniform. Uh, they can be different around the edges. But the sorts of things that transform societies, whether it's Canada, whether it's Colombia, or whether it's Cambodia, a lot of the fundamental processes are the same. The processes by which societies and economies transform over time uh, and how this affects the lives, and the quality of lives of people. That's the thing that I'm interested in. So the first definition that you gave, mm. it really sounds like international development studies is about helping everyone. I wouldn't <laughs> use the word help, and I wouldn't use it because um, 
it's not my job when I do my advisory work to go and give people advice about what they should do. My role uh, when I do my advisory work is to present the options that are available as I understand them to allow the people that I work with to think about those options, to ask questions about those options, and to then, then to decide for themselves whether or not they want to pursue those options. Uh, I'm very much a believer that the places that, that are interested in transforming their circumstances need to listen to the voices of the people whose lives are going to be transformed. And it shouldn't be the case that outside experts come in and tell people what they should do. It should much rather be the case that we, as richer societies, having grown rich on the back of a history of colonial exploitation, have an obligation to facilitate what other peoples want to do in order to improve the livelihoods of their populations. That's our obligation. And so it's not about help. If anything, it's about, it's about trying to overcome the injustices of history. And it's not about help in the sense that I don't, I don't believe in charity. I believe that most societies know what's best for their people, and they simply lack either the resources or the knowledge as to how to achieve what they think is best for their people. And that's what I'm interested in helping with. Right. Uh, so from what I know, one of your main uh, research interests is in food. Yes. Uh, I think it's obvious for, at least for me, it's very obvious that world hunger is not a problem because we don't have food. You can just walk in the grocery store and you can see the abundance of food we got. So is it purely like a, a, a food logistic problem? Mm. It's not an, even an issue of logistics because you can be in some very poor places and if you walk into a market, there's lots of food. The problem is that people do not have the money to buy the food that's there. And this is the case around the world. The world produces more than enough food to feed everybody. And the reason people go hungry is simply because they don't have cash. So world hunger is not a problem of scarcity. It's a problem of economic inequality. And circumstances have to be created by which people who don't have the money to buy the food that's available to them are at least placed in a position that they are able to purchase food that's there sitting in their local markets. So uh, the saying, uh, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day, teach a man how to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. I don't think that quote was supposed to be taken literally. But nowadays, if you say, if you said that, it's not even like a food logistic issue or a food scarcity issue. Isn't it a great idea if, like, if, say you're the dictator of the world, a great idea to just give people food. Okay, well, there's a couple of points to that. Um, the first point is that for most of human history, societies have been arranged in such a way that every member of a society had the right by membership of that society to the food that they needed to be able to not only survive and not only have their families survive, but to more than manage. That food was a part of being part of a community. What's happened over the course of the past 150 years is that societies have divorced much of, uh, of their communities away from this right to food because the way in which you acquire food is by selling your labor or by selling your products in markets to be able to get cash to buy the food that's already there. And the way in which you can claim food is through money. I really do have to stress that this is an incredibly recent phenomena. 150 years old, whereas human civilization, Gandhi said it would be a good idea, but let's just say it is, Human civilization is at most eleven or 12,000 years old. So for most of settled human societies, people have had a right to food simply by being member of their society. They've received that food from their places of worship or from their neighbors 
or from their uh, from, from uh, their princes. They haven't had to pay any money for it. They've received it because it's part and parcel of being part of a community. We've moved away from that. And if we think that that's relatively recent, there's nothing to turn around and to say, well, why couldn't we have a society which was based upon this more historic understanding that you don't get food through money, you get food because you are a citizen. And as a citizen, you have a right to food. There are movements around the world that are trying to enshrine constitutionally in several countries this idea that a right to food should not be a function of how much money that you possess. Your right to food should be a consequence of your citizenship. It's a very different way of thinking about it. Um, But if the right to food would be one which you would acquire as a consequence of citizenship, then yes, uh, people would receive the food they need. They wouldn't have to pay over any money. They'd be given it. That'd be the end of the story. There'd be no more hunger. <laughs> well, obviously, there there are, like, obstacles stopping people from doing that. Otherwise, other, like, everyone would be doing that, right? Or is it really that simple? Well, in the one sense, it's simple. On the other hand, it's very complicated. So the complications are that we live in a world in which our dominant food system globally is one which is controlled by monolithic corporations which are interested in selling food to you and to me, not so that we satisfy the, the need that we have for it. They're interested in selling it to you and me so that they can placate the financial markets which dictate that they have short-term profitability as publicly listed companies. And so there's a financial imperative for these companies to ensure that, uh, that they earn sufficient money from their activities, that they're not taken over, that they're not bought out, that they're not restructured, that a private equity fund doesn't come in and subsume them. And these companies really aren't interested in whether people have enough. They're interested in whether the financial markets are being satisfied. So moving away from that kind of system is obviously going to be very, very demanding because it actually requires challenging the role of corporate power not only in the food system, but also in the wider economy. But the notion that societies might want to construct mechanisms of provisioning in which people would acquire food as a right rather than through money is something which is not fantastical. Over the course of this decade, there was a right-to-food movement in India. The right-to-food movement in India secured uh, the assent, the, the agreement, I should say, of India's Supreme Court, that the way in which people were accessing food was a violation of their human rights, and they instructed the Indian government to ensure that every Indian had a right to food based upon certain quantities of certain basics, regardless of their economic circumstances, and that they would access this right to food using their citizenship card, which contains biometric information and which allows them to access a certain uh, state uh, Uh, social protection schemes, such as the right to food. Uh, This scheme has only been going on for a couple of years, but it's not going to go anywhere. And I think the idea that that, um, it could have demonstration effects and other societies could move towards promoting a right to food not based upon monetary circumstances, but based upon citizenship, is something which could gain traction. If you look at a couple of more recent initiatives here in Canada, behind some of these things is an understanding that food is a basic human right. So um, uh, Nick Saul, who along with Andrea Curtis was quite fundamental in transforming the Stop Food Bank in urban Toronto into the Stop Community Food Centre, and now is the chair of Canada's Food Community Centre Networks, um, is a very strong believer that people's right to food should not be a result of how much money they have. And he transformed then this food bank into a community food center in which people without money were given shopping baskets and could go and pick what they wanted. It was fresh. It was local. It wasn't ultra-processed. It was healthy. And he believed that this should be their right. And that community food center... It has its issues, but it works reasonably well in serving the food needs of the communities with which it's engaged. More recently, the last Liberal government in the province of Ontario 
instituted an experiment in three cities uh, in the province, an experiment which has been terminated by the current government, in which people who were in receipt of social welfare were instead given a basic income, and this basic income was given to them regardless of whether they were working or not. And what the basic income guarantee offered was the ability to have money regardless of economic circumstances so that they could walk into a supermarket and buy the food that was there. Again, the notion of a basic income given to you as a right of citizenship is another way of achieving the right to food because that money isn't earned. The link between work and earnings is broken through the use of a basic income. And again, that's an experiment that we have homegrown here in Ontario based upon decades-old experience in Manitoba and elsewhere. So there are experiments in trying to trying to understand ways in which food would be provided here in Canada as a as something which everyone should be entitled to regardless of circumstances. So one of my question was uh was going to be about is it more important to have ingenuity in food or ingenuity in food logistic? But turns out it's neither. <laughs> no, 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 ingenuity in food, it depends what you mean by uh, that. Food but- production. Well, ingenuity in okay, well, production. there's several things about, about ingenuity when it comes to the food system. Let me take it slightly differently. The first thing to say is that many small-scale farmers around the world, both in Canada but also in developing countries, those who have rejected conventional uh, industrial agricultural methods based upon purchased seeds, chemical fertilizers, chemical pesticides, and the production of monocultures for external markets— The sorts of farmers who have rejected that have had to be tremendously ingenious in being able to secure a livelihood for themselves, their families, and their communities. And what you have seen in many parts of the world is, in fact, around the issue of food production for those small-scale farmers, tremendous ingenuity when faced with the failures of the more conventional food system. In China, the rise of a move towards the production of more organic, locally sourced food, uh, uh, very often farmed by part-time food growers, has been driven by the failures of an industrial provisioning system, which has led to wide-scale food contamination, along with uh, frequent uh, frequent instances, instances of death amongst populations who have died for the simple reason they've consumed tainted industrially produced food. So the rise of, uh, of a more sustainable food system in China has, is a direct consequence of the way in which an industrialized food system has not uh, guaranteed people safe and nutritious food and has required ingenuity to get around. If we look at some of the most productive farm production systems in the world, farms, rice farms, for example, in the Indian state of Andhra Pradesh, farms which reject industrial methods and use a methodology called the system of rice intensification, which is in fact the exact opposite of more industrial farming methods. The ingenuity of these farmers has resulted in the highest yields of rice recorded anywhere in human history, and that hasn't been a consequence of the use of purchased seeds and agrochemicals. It's been the result of thinking about how to farm in harmony with nature rather than on top of or against nature, as is the norm even in industrial agriculture. So amongst food producers around the world, there's a huge amount of ingenuity. And indeed, one of the things that the industrial agricultural system wants to do is eliminate that ingenuity to de-skill farmers from their abilities to work within their landscapes to produce healthy and nutritious food, de-skill them so that they become reliant upon the market for inputs and the market to sell their products. I would also say that there's a lot of ingenuity as well amongst eaters. So it's not just producers, it's amongst eaters. Because increasingly what we're seeing is a rejection of ultra-processed foods purchased in the middle aisles of supermarkets and an increasing embrace of trying to learn very hesitantly and very uh, cautiously some of the elementary norms around how to cook safe, nutritious, healthy food for yourself. As, as young people in particular come to realize that there's social value in making your own meals, values which come not just from the sense of community that's engendered by sharing a meal together, 
but also the social value that comes from knowing the fact that you've bypassed an industrial food system which promotes obesity in favor of your own transformation of your food into something which you want to eat, which can be fast, nutritious, and delicious. One of the examples that I always use with my my second-year students is that Canada has the highest consumption of Kraft macaroni and cheese dinner in the world per person, and yet you can go home, you can make your own mac and cheese in about the same time it takes you to open the packet and make it, and it's going to be far healthier, and it actually is a fraction of the cost. So it's cheaper, it's healthier, and it tastes better. People are learning this. They're learning it slowly. Ingenuity to food consumption is coming back after, it should be said, decades of attempts to de-skill cooks so they no longer know how to cook, they only know, know how to assemble. So, yeah, because well, my question was going to be, can you feed real food with uh, to everyone on, on the earth? Obviously, by what you just said, kind of yes. Well, the answer there is... Um, Yes, in theory it's possible, but the, but the way in which the planetary diet is constructed actually precludes getting real food to everyone on the planet. And the reason that the construction of the food system prevents it is because the contemporary food system promotes an, uh, an increasing intensity of meat consumption. And meat consumption is actually a quite inefficient way of getting food energy because meat requires more kilocalories of energy going in to their production than it actually generates in terms of kilocalories coming out. And that's true of beef, which is the worst. It's true of lamb. It's true of pork. It's also true of chicken, which has exploded in its consumption over the course of the past 35 years. If we were to rearrange our food system so that people started to eat less meat— the animal feed that that uh, uh, the grain that goes into the animal uh, to the feed that's used to feed the animals which provide us with our meat, that grain could easily be easily be used to feed far more people, and if we then combined that with finding r- ways in which we could reduce our food waste, there's absolutely no doubt that the planet would produce already produces more than enough food to produce the 11 billion people expected to be living here in the year 2100. We already produce enough food now. The problem is it's not used to feed people. It's used to feed animals. uh, And that's something that would have to change in order to feed people real food out of existing resources, let alone any expansion of food resources in the future. Uh, This is is a recurring uh, feeling I have when I was researching for international development studies, basically for this episode, is that this subject really every single time you look into a problem you just see more problems you see a smaller problems you keep seeing more problems rather than yielding knowledge from problems i just yield more problems from all the problems uh do you feel that above uh obviously similar things happens in other subjects as well like in math and physics there are problems that are unsolved but you kind of need to look into that. But for international development studies, I just take a quick glance like, oh my God, look at all these issues we've got. Do Mm. you ever feel that? Well, if I focus in specifically on the issue of food, I would say I don't don't feel that at all. I think the solutions to to the the inability of our food system to provide an adequate subsistence for the population of the world, the solutions to those problems are actually already well known. we have to decrease our reliance upon meat, and we have to increase our consumption of plant-based proteins and minerals. We have to especially increase our consumption of pulses uh, and legumes in order to uh, make up for any protein deficiencies that would arise out of a reduction in meat consumption. The Lancet, which is the world's leading and preeminent medical journal, Last uh, earlier this year, I'm going to say this year, but it may have been late last year, actually uh, published an article on how to reformulate the planetary diet to make it more sustainable while also being environmentally friendly. And that's exactly what it recommended, a shift towards much greater consumption of legumes, 
nuts and grains and away from our excessive consumption on meat and dairy. Now, the thing about that kind of formulation is it may seem like it's very utopian, but the reality is is that we live in a world in which our current food system contributes between a quarter and a third of the greenhouse gases emitted uh, around the world day in and day out. And those greenhouse gas emissions actually undermine the capability of agriculture to provide safe and nutritious food for everyone. So we've created a food system in which the way in which we produce food actually undermines the biophysical conditions necessary to produce food. And this is a huge contradiction. Now, that contradiction has been recognized by a small-scale farmers and eaters movement, which is global in scale. And this farmers and eaters movement goes by the name La Via Campesina, originating in Central America in the mid-1990s. La Via Campesina has over 200 affiliated, uh, 200 million affiliated members worldwide, and these people struggle for the construction of an alternative food system which feeds people and cools the planet at the same time. This food system would be one that's not based upon the multiplication of a food system that degrades the environment upon which food production is based, but rather promotes a food system which is predicated upon not only restoring the health of soils and the micronutrients in them, but in fact improving the health of soils and the micronutrients in them so that land becomes more capable of feeding people rather than feeding animals. This global movement has been going for more than 25 years, and it's had some notable successes uh, over, during that period. Uh, one notable success this decade is that after a long period of lobbying, La Via Campesina was invited to be a civil service observer to the Committee on World Food Security of the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, which means that it actually intervenes in global debates around how to construct a more just food order. And partly as a consequence of this, last year, the United Nations issued a declaration on the human rights of peasants and other rural workers, something which has never existed before, a mechanism which is designed to promote the rights of peasants through human rights legislation, uh, the rights of peasants to be able to continue to provide not only for their families but also for their communities. The world is turning away from a system of farming which is very, very recent in origin, can be traced back to its current form to only the past 35 years, moving much more to, towards a sort of food system which is based upon far more sustainable, ecologically friendly, soil regenerative farming practices which have the capability of feeding everyone, uh, while at the same time providing a decent livelihood for everyone who works in the food system. And it should be said that this is tremendously urgent because if you have a food system which produces between a quarter and a third of all greenhouse gas emissions and you want to stop climate change, one of the ways in which we stop climate change is changing the food system. And if we don't change the food system, in my view, we won't be able to stop climate change and the planet will burn. Right. I personally find that changing my own dietary habit is perhaps going to be the most challenging thing I've ever do as a human. Mm -hmm. Like I, 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 I just, I compare this as like, I think I will finish reading the Holy Bible before I change my dietary mm -hmm. habit. Like, uh, I obviously, I understand what you meant by everything that you just said. It just, it, it it really it really like yeah all the puzzle pieces are here we just need to put them together and then it works mm. is it is it like kind of how it is for in terms of like for world hunger and for uh, some kind of climate change well the thing about it is clayton is that we we are all raised in very specific food cultures we're raised to assume certain food norms and food habits and we should not feel guilty that we have been socialized into certain food consumption patterns. And so many people rely upon their processed foods, which doesn't require cooking. It just requires, as I've said, assembly. 
They enjoy going to their fast food joints. They, they think that things should be quick, that things should be immediate. They think that they're getting choice when they do these, when they do this. But what I've seen over the course of the past several decades is an increasing movement amongst young people in particular, which is quite dissatisfied with some of this. They realize the changes that are required, and they find it personally very challenging to think about how they might reformulate their food habits. But some of this is much less demanding than might be thought. One of the things that I think is quite useful for people to learn, which isn't particularly well taught but isn't difficult, is actually to come up with five meals that you prepare yourself from scratch, which take yeah, no more than about 20 minutes to prepare. Five meals that when you have them, you think, this is really good. This is much better than anything I'm going to get from a fast food joint. And I did it myself from scratch. The amount of satisfaction that people get from, from knowing how to do those five meals is immense. And increasingly, I see people thinking about how can I construct a five, five central meals which are easy, fast, nutritious, taste great, and I do it myself. And when I do it, I'm actually relaxed and I'm enjoying it because I'm listening to music or I'm talking with my friends. I can give my friends some of this and I've made it myself, sharing what I've done rather than simply relying on the purchasing power in my pocket. Food is a tremendously social thing. And particularly here at Trent, one of the things that does happen is that students who live in their houses in town, they they like to get together occasionally and sit down as, as a house and share a meal which they have jointly prepared. They find it an adventure. It doesn't take very much to take that as a once-a-term activity and turn it into a once-a-month activity and then turn it into a once-a-week activity. And so it's not actually all that difficult to transition to a different kind of diet, especially if you're producing things which are, which are straightforward to make and delicious. The one thing that I do say to everyone, that we, as consumers of food, if we want to make one contribution towards, towards combating climate change, and I think we all have an obligation to do this, the one contribution we can make is eat less meat. It's bad for our health, it's bad for the climate, and it's not necessary as part of our diet. And if people simply start thinking about how can I eat less meat and still enjoy what I'm eating, they're still making a move towards going partway towards altering their food habits and challenging the things that they've been raised with. One of the things that I say to my students at the end of the course is that, you know, we are not responsible for the way in which the food system operates. What we are responsible for is how the food system evolves in the future. And that comes down to all of us coming together and thinking about how we can change our food habits in ways that are far more environmentally friendly and climate cooling. We can all make a we can all make a contribution to this. Before we switch topic, do you have any food related like food system related myth you would like to debunk? Well, the 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 the, the number one myth I would I would always debunk around food is that we need industrial agriculture to feed the world. And this is a myth. Uh, industrial agriculture feeds the populations of the rich world. But in most of the rest of the world, it's small-scale peasant farmers or peri-urban agriculture uh, in uh, developing country cities or it's hunter-gathering. These are the things which feed communities around the world. It's not the products of industrial agriculture, which by and large go to the planet's top 10% of, food consuming, uh, of the food-consuming population. So this idea that we need industrial agriculture to feed the world is a total myth. It feeds us, but it doesn't feed the world already. Okay. So I watched a video. It's uh, the video is arguing that maybe the U.S. the U.S. government should move some of their uh, agency to Midwest of uh, of the of the United States to kind of like spread the opportunity around hmm. because there are lots of like uh, uh, lots of cities that are not doing super well like Columbus like uh, Detroit like that. Hmm. 
<clears throat> can I make a similar compare? Can I can I make a similar argument saying that maybe the world can put some of the some of its less like politic intensive organization and have them headquartered in a developing country to kind of like spread the opportunity around? Well, I mean, there are already elements of that in place in the sense that. Uh, you know, the United Nations as a global organization has not only its headquarters in New York, but it has sub-regional offices in West Africa, in East Africa, in Southern Africa, in South Asia, in Southeast Asia, in Europe, uh, in Central America, in Latin America. It has regional offices, and then it has countrywide offices. The World Bank is in the process of decentralizing its uh, its headquarters unit to outside of Washington, moving more people into other countries, although that is partially in response to the way in which the current U.S. administration works. There is an argument uh, to do around that, but the, the, the issue is that that would provide jobs for upper-middle-class people around the world who have university educations and are interested in working in development or working as civil servants. And the vast majority of people in the world don't have the opportunity to do that, because they lack the education that's required as the ticket to get into those sorts of positions. So that might have some beneficial effects, but in terms of dealing with issues around global poverty and a global underclass, which may not be poor, but which lives on the margins of a decent livelihood, that's not going to be enough. Those sorts of people need to live in societies in which they can get a decent reward for the work that they do, where they have stable and secure employment rather than precarious, insecure, and unsafe employment. And they need to be in a position in which they can make a difference for the other members of their families. And education in the future is one way in which that could happen, a ticket into that kind of middle-class job for a later generation, sure. But for the people who are living right here, right now, the decentralization of government or international organizations isn't going to provide a solution for the way in which they permanently are able to exit from being in a position of um, uh, vulnerability to poverty, unemployment, and insecurity. Right. So, uh, you mentioned education earlier. Uh, again, from I just uh, I just I read things, uh, listened to things about international development. Admittedly, not like a lot, but like it really sounds like education is the ultimate solution to everything. Mm. Is it almost? Is it kind of the case? Yes, it's very straightforward. But it's not just education. The most the the the, the most single most important way of transforming social and economic circumstances facing global populations is to increase women's availability to education, their access to education, girls and women. I'm talking about primary education in many parts of the world, but in many parts of the world we're talking about secondary education, and in some parts of the world we're talking about post-secondary education. In uh, the, the evidence that we have on this is really quite dramatic, with improvements in female education, you see a situation in which economies tend to grow more rapidly. Uh, they grow more rapidly because with women having education, they're in a better position to enter the labor force and get a job, which provides for their children, because very often men don't provide for their children. It's mothers that provide for their children. While at the same time, in terms of their spending, uh, Educated women are far more likely to ensure that their children in turn get an education, and particularly their daughters. And this then builds in uh, more educated populations over time. It's also the case that educated women have far fewer children and do so very, very rapidly. And that changes the demographic picture facing many, many societies. Female education is not without its challenges because in some societies where the op where there is sun preference and the opportunities for sex selective abortion exists you can get biased sex ratios in which you have far more males than you have females and in those societies korea is a very good case in point for many educated women they have to make a choice between giving giving up their career and getting married or choosing to maintain their career and simply not get married 
and many of those women choose not to get married in order to continue their career, and the result is a demographic collapse, which threatens the long-term economic stability of the country. But that's function. That's more a function of gender norms than it is of education. Women would like to be able to combine work with a with a rich family life, but in a place like Korea, social norms actually make that very very difficult. Um, and so, female education is, you know, there's very few things that we can say with absolute certainty when we when it comes to to, to international development. But one of the things that we can say with certainty is female education is a long-term solution to many of the global problems that we face. Uh, uh, perhaps it's just my, I think, about my own education experience. But I'm thinking, like, if I, like, if everyone get the, gets the kind of education that, what I meant to say is that education is great, but there are good education and bad education. And I would like to think that the math curriculum of Canada's high school is not good. Mm. Like, I, I think that not every day, but once in a while, I think of things like that. But um, like saying providing education with everyone is good. But if you don't provide good education to every uh, everyone, it's not like a slam dunk win. It's mm. just kind of like helps a bit, mm. right? But I don't disagree with you. When I say provide ed- ed- to provide provide everyone with education, and particularly females, I'm not saying provide them with bad education. Oh yeah, right? of course. Of course, you, what you want is you want to provide good quality education, and we certainly know uh, many of the things that that consists of, and in many parts of the world where education is available, it's very, very poor quality. But the point is, is that improvements in female education uh, in terms of, um, you know, basic skills in literacy, basic skills in, in writing, basic skills in mathematics, these basic skills can really transform people's lives' circumstances. Of course, the education could be a, should be a good one, and there's always areas to improve. But we shouldn't say, well, because some places have poor education, then we shouldn't worry about people's education, period. That's a luxury that only those who already have an education can have. Right, yeah. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when I listen to talks and lectures about uh, on, on international development, I sometimes find that the issues are just too big. Like, they're just too ungraspable. Like you can tell me hundreds of thousands of people da 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 and billions of millions of people. I just at at some at one point I just blanked out. I just like these numbers means nothing to me anymore. Do you ever experience that? No, because one of the great privileges of my life is being able to continually engage with people in small communities around the world to learn from them, to try and understand what's what's constraining their lives, what they need to make it better. And these are the most generous people you'll ever meet, the sorts of people who can't afford to buy tea, but when you come into their home, they send one of their children out to buy a little bit of tea so that you have a cup of tea. Uh, The sorts of people that um, don't eat meat uh, more than once a month, you come into their home, they kill a chicken so that you can have a meal that they're proud of and they can share it with you. No, I mean, these, these are problems of the everyday. And... It is certainly the case that when we talk about international development, you can focus upon global issues which appear insurmountable and very large. But if you think about global development, as I said at the beginning, about how societies and economies change over time around the world, global development is a Canadian issue. So, for example, when I was a kid, I was totally aware in northern Ontario that uh, Grassy Narrows Reserve did not have access to clean drinking water because it had been polluted by mercury and many of the population were subject to Minamata disease because of mercury poisoning. That was in the 1970s. It's 2019. That community is still under a water advisory because of excessive levels of mercury in their water. It isn't rocket science. It's social science. Somebody has to pay for clean water. You and I take clean water as so every day 
that we don't actually understand the incredible luxury it is for far too many Canadians, particularly Indigenous Canadians, in many parts of this country. The basic right to clean water is something which is not something which is far away and can be measured in the billions. These are communities around northern Ontario of a few hundred people. They deserve clean water. The government should give it to them, given the legacies of, com- of colonialism, given the legacies of, of the residential schools, and given the realities of missing and murdered Indigenous women. Con- this country owes Indigenous communities a debt which we have consistently failed to repay. That's not far away. That's on our back door. Right. Yeah, I think it's it's more it's easier to for people to comprehend like well, for me to comprehend when i see like oh it's a f- there's a fire over there like compared to you telling me things happening in brazil i just like okay sure no that th- that's understandable because of course if you don't have any experience of brazil brazil can be much more difficult to comprehend but one of the things which is true is that many canadian students attending post secondary education of the sort that they're receiving here at trent university They've been to developing countries. They've been to that resort in the Dominican Republic. They've been to that resort in Mexico. They've been to uh, some place in Jamaica. They haven't left that resort. Get outside the resort, and the reality is right there. You don't have to be afraid. Just get out there and have a look at it. The world is more interconnected than it has ever been in human history. And understanding the day-to-day struggles that people have is something that you can connect to in a more immediate way than at any time in human history. Understanding the challenges that people face and how, and how, in some instances, the way in which our society operates has shaped the way in which their society operates, that's very, very important. It's very, very important for realizing that these things may happen in a distant place, but all of us have a global responsibility to do our bit to affect change locally. And if all of us affect change locally, that is a global response. Uh, do you think that the amount of information we receive, like by looking up in social media, reading the news, that kind of makes us care less about things because an individual can only care about so many things. And when you look at things happen in Syria or like cartel in Mexico or uh, the f- uh, a rainforest is on fire. Uh, do you think this kind of information overload makes people care thing less? Oh, I think what it does is it leads people to filter what they listen to a lot more than was ever the case before. But I think part and parcel of the purpose of social media is precisely to filter things so that you actually don't pay as much attention as you used to. And you don't want to pay that attention so that social media companies can sell you things because they want you to buy stuff. And buying stuff is their purpose, not trying to convey information. Information is secondary. If information wasn't secondary, you wouldn't have a situation in which Mark Zuckerberg is perfectly at ease in saying that politicians can place ads on Facebook, which are outright lies. You know, It's not about conveying information. It's about selling space so that products can be sold. Um Obviously, people engage with global issues on different scales, uh, in different circumstances. Many people don't care about what happens in the rest of the world. And, you know, they just are concerned with their own community. But as I said, development is not something which is just about the rest of the world. It's about what's going on in our own community. The terms and conditions by which Peterborough society has changed over the past 25 years is a process of development. And understanding how, pe- how some people have lost from that process, which in this community people clearly have, and how some people have gained from that process, which in this community some people clearly have, understanding these processes, these local processes, helps us connect the local to the global in a lived kind of way. I do think that it's very easy to put these things and think of them as being very, very distant. But when fire is consuming your community in California and you haven't thought about climate change, you have to face it very, very rapidly. When fire is consuming Fort McMurray and the community is 
is basically evacuated for weeks at a time. You have to think about this very, very regularly. We had snowfall three weeks ago for the first time in more than a decade. The temperatures were actually historically cold for that time of the month. That's climate change. That's not happening someplace distant. That's happening right here, right now. And the forces that are driving it are actually very easy to see if people want to open their eyes. And so global challenges have local consequences. And as soon as you start to try and connect the local to the global, you start to recognize that global challenges are only going to be solved by local actions. It's the combination of the two of them that can bring about some kind of change that can save the planet. I just personally think that people don't care because there are too many issues to care about. I disagree. Like even within, say, like like down the community, like down in the pe- just the people level, there are still like so many issues that people should worry, quote unquote, yeah, should worry there's about. There's lots of people. There's lot. I'm not saying that that some people don't care because some people just want to get on with their lives and don't want to be interfered with. They want autonomy and they want a decent income. But when they don't have that decent income, and that decent income is a, fu- is a function of economic forces over which they had no control, if they understood those forces, they might think about different ways in terms of dealing with those forces. And the thing about Peterborough as a community is that Peterborough is actually remarkably engaged as a community with important issues which affect this community and which affect the wider community, both in the region, but also more globally. The sorts of students that we get here at Trent University, many of whom stay on and live in this community, are engaged locally. They care about the future of the world. And one of the things that continually gives me energy is the extent to which the undergraduates that I teach, that they really want to make a difference and make the world a better place. They realize that business as usual is a recipe for disaster because business as usual will be burning hydrocarbons at a rate which results in significant climate change, which will fundamentally alter the lives of their generation. And without addressing that, their lives will be much worse off than my life has been. And the opportunities that they they might have will be far fewer than the opportunities that I have had. These people... They continually inspire me because they want to make a difference. And I see them every day. Right. Uh, for students, for high school students who are thinking to uh, thinking about studying international development studies, uh, what courses in high school would you recommend them to take to prepare themselves for university IDS program? Yeah, no, the obvious course is in, in grade 12, there's a global issues course. It uses a textbook produced by New Internationalist. I've known many high school children that have taken it. It gives you a broad overview to some of the issues in international development, and it's a very good foundation. I can't speak about other other universities and other programs, but here at Trent University, a lot of our first-year IDS students have taken this course in global issues to begin with. Uh, Those tend to be the students that come in and think that they might want to major in international development. What I find more interesting in some ways, are the students that come to Trent University and, like all good liberal arts colleges, the first-year students are not clear about what they want to do, and so they take courses that they think sound a little bit interesting. And every year we have 20 or 25 students that take our first-year course and have no idea what international development is, and by the end of the year they know that's what they want to major in, even if they're not sure how it's going to affect their life. Uh, And those students are the really interesting ones because without having the benefits of a liberal arts degree, an opportunity which didn't exist in Ontario 30 or 40 years ago is really only a consequence now of the lack of job opportunities that exist after graduation. The benefits of a liberal art degree allows you to focus upon things that you become passionate about. When you become passionate about them, you do better. You do better, you go further. All reinforces itself. Right. Uh, what are you up to in terms of research and teaching? Well, in terms of teaching, I teach uh, f- I teach five courses at Trent University. I teach two first-year courses. The first one is our first-term, fall-term introductory course called Human Inequality and Global Perspective, a course which can trace its roots back to 1978, although it's changed. 
I teach another first-year course in the winter term called Issues in Global Human Inequality. In the second year, I teach a course entitled The World Food System, which looks at food issues through an interdisciplinary lens. And then in the winter term, I teach a course which is sort of my pet course because it's what I do most of my work on. It's called Peasants, Food, and Agrarian Change. And it focuses upon the challenges facing small-scale farmers in developing countries. And then I teach an upper-year, fourth-year course, which is uh, a, an advanced seminar in international development studies which is more a course in how to critically read some of the foundational texts uh, from the discipline and is only designed for the very best students. In terms of my research, uh, over the course of the past four years, it's changed a little bit, although in a sense, it's gone back to the future. So when I started doing my, my original research, I was interested in why women small-scale farmers were less productive in their activities than men small-scale farmers, particularly in northern Asia. And I did that research over a period of, uh, of seven years. More recently, I've been in a situation in which uh, United Nations agencies have asked me to explore this very question in eastern and southern Africa. And so why is it that women small-scale farmers are less productive than men small-scale farmers across the, the Horn of Africa and across the Eastern and Southern African region. And that research which I've done, the field work I did for that was done in 2017. Uh, I've done subsequent research for that in 2018. Uh, eventually that all of that will come out as a book as long as a series of academic uh, scholarly articles. And I, I find that research tremendous that research tremendously rewarding because it's based upon going into quite remote communities and asking people about what it is that limits their capability to improve their farm productivity. And for most small-scale farmers, if you can improve their farm productivity, that is the stepping stone towards a better life and a better education for everyone in the household. So the sorts of things I'm investigating are designed to have immediate and real consequences for people who are very often desperately poor and eking out livelihoods on the margins of their societies. Just on a side, uh, any idea of uh, uh, any plan for trying to do like a graduate program in international? We've talked about that over the years, um, and there's never been a consensus in our de in our department about taking on graduate studies. Uh, usually, there's been a few people that are quite interested, uh, whereas others are less interested. Uh, there's several reasons for that. Um, it has to be said that over the, the course of the introduction of graduate studies at Trent University, the, the mechanisms in place by which faculty would be able to claim the time they spent teaching graduate students against the expectations of their workload were never very clearly defined. And so many people took on graduate students as above normal workload tasks. And I gotta say, people work so hard already that that's not attractive to a lot of people. You also have someone like myself. I worked in an exclusively graduate school of development studies, Europe's largest, for 12 years. Over the course of my 12 years there, I probably supervised something on the order of more than 400 master's students which means that supervising a master's student has very little appeal to me. I've done lots of it. At the same time, I act as an external examiner for doctoral students probably two or three times a year. And so I do a lot of doctoral graduate work, but I don't do it at this institution. I do it at the University of Toronto. I do it at Queen's University. I do it at universities in Australia, in South Africa, in India, in the UK, in many parts of the world. So it doesn't hold as much of an interest uh, to me. I think the, the main issue in place for many of us is that it remains the case that amongst development studies students across Canada, the Trent degree in international development has a reputation as being amongst the very best. And it certainly is the case that we attract some of the best students that this university produces, all you have to do is look at the share of the graduating class 
that is on the president's honor roll every year, the share of them accounted for by Trent IDS students, and you see that we are disproportionately represented amongst the, the graduates who receive awards from the university for excellence. So we attract the very best students. Now, the thing about it is, is that it's a good general rule that you should not do your undergraduate degree at the same place that you're going to do your graduate degree. But if we produce the best students, then we wouldn't be able to take in the best students because we'd be telling them to go somewhere else. So there is a good argument there as to why we wouldn't necessarily want to do a master's degree. Something we have talked about occasionally is the idea of not doing a master's degree and simply doing a doctoral degree. And I think that's quite an interesting proposition because that's very unusual in a Canadian university. But to do a doctoral degree, you do require a range of, uh, a range of academic skills across the ability to do supervision in a range of areas. And the fact of the matter is our department is simply too small to sustain a doctoral program. We'd have to do it in collaboration with somewhere else. So there's reasons why we haven't created a graduate program. Anything else in particular you want to talk about? Oh, I've just I've enjoyed having this conversation. Um, uh, but uh, no, not particularly. Right. So I guess that, that does it for this episode. Thank you very much, Haroon. Thanks very much, Clayton. I really enjoyed talking to you. And if you want to find the links to the stuff we talk about today, you can go to anchor.fm slash naturally hyphen curious. While you are there, you can send me an email with feedback. And if you like this podcast, you can tell your friends about it. And until next episode, stay curious. <laughs>